So when I was a kid, people would say things like, he's a good Christian man. There was even a song where uh, the singer said, a woman asked him when he went to visit New Orleans, are you a Christian boy? And he said, ma'am, I am tonight. You know, it, being a Christian was generally viewed as a, as a good thing. I heard somebody say that when I was a kid, being a Christian could get you a job. You know, some of you even have businesses here where you put front and center the fact that you're a Christian. Maybe a Christian fish or the name of your business indicates that you're a Christian. Sometimes you just look through the yellow pages or Yelp and it's really obvious that person's a Christian. And that used to actually help your business. That wasn't the only reason people do it. They wanted people to know who they were. But there was an assumption of integrity. There was an assumption of that person answering to someone beyond themselves and not just being in it for the bottom line dollar, but for something bigger than that. And that drew people to that person. But today, being a Christian could cost you your job. You could get fired because you are simply holding to Christian convictions that you got straight out of the Bible. It's been fascinating to watch the shift in our culture. And obviously, it brings challenge, but I think it brings tremendous opportunity. I just did an interview this week with a journalist for a pretty major publication, and, and she was asking me questions about the latest research that just came out this week about people increasingly leaving the church. And the question always is, what, are, what have we been doing wrong to lose them, and what do we need to do better to get them back? <laughs> and I said, and that's, that's where most of her questions were we're coming from, and I just said, I think those questions are a big part of the problem. I think seeing everything is about strategy and methodology and whether or not we're giving the consumer what they want is actually part of the problem that's leading to people leaving the church. And I said to her, in all the years I've been hearing, which is my whole life, people are leaving the church. The reasons are always more peripheral, and I've never once heard someone say, I'm leaving the church because I don't find Jesus beautiful anymore, because I don't find Jesus true anymore. I don't find Jesus worthy of my worship. It's, it's more peripheral things, which tends to be the way it works out. Even in the book of Daniel, as we saw last week, as Rob so helpfully got this series going. It wasn't deny Yahweh. It was live contrary to how you believe he would have you live in this context. And so very often more peripheral things become the issue of the heart. And that's what we need to think about. Not strategy, first and foremost. Nothing wrong with thinking about strategy. But, but the heart, the human heart is the issue. And so this morning the question is, who are you? Who are you? And what I mean by that is, who are you in your understanding relative to who your creator is? Who are you? What do you really believe in? 
And, and one of the reasons I think it's good that we're seeing increasing opposition to being a Christian in this culture is because there's going to be a sifting effect. And you're going to find out who's been in it all along because it might increase their business. See, there's something good about being unpopular if you're a faithful Christian. It's actually how most Christians throughout the history of the world lived. In this culture, though, we've gotten really used to uh, being affirmed for being a Christian. That's not how most Christians, certainly not how the early church was, not how God's people were for most of her history. And so we've got to realize that there's a tremendous opportunity for us these days. And the book of Daniel, the reason we're studying this book is because it is going to teach us how to be blessings without blending in. That's the challenge. There are some options that are easier than that, like separation. And that's been a tendency throughout history. People, the Essenes in the first century, they just went off into the desert. They wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we benefited from that. But their, their, their response to a culture that was hostile to them and their faith was to just go off into the desert and separate themselves. And then, so you could be separate, but, or you could be the same. You can be the same. You just blend in. That one's easy, too. The tough one is to be salt. Not the same, not separate, but salt. That's, that's the image Jesus gives. We're to be salt and light. Separation has an easiness to it. And, and it can look lots of different ways. You can separate yourself by just being angry all the time, even though you live in this culture. And see yourself as nothing but a fighter against whatever's going on. That's what the zealots did, you know. They didn't separate, but they, they fought. It was a kind of separation. And, and then there were plenty of people in the first century throughout the history of the church who just were the same. They just blended in. They assimilated. And we don't want to do that. We want to be in the world and not of the world. We want to understand what it means to be salt, not separate, not the same, but salt and light in a world that desperately needs to know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the purpose of our lives. Not to just be angry people, shaking our fists all the time, but having conviction that leads us to live lives of faithful integrity and even in that being a blessing in a culture that is increasingly in opposition to us. And so, so the reason we wanted to go through this is because of how helpful the context is here in the book of Daniel. And so who you are really is what you believe deep down. The story of Daniel helps us learn wisdom from people who are in an oppositional culture, living lives of conviction and character. And that's what it boils down to. Who you are is based on what you believe. And so just by way of reminder, the, the people of God are in exile. And someone who's in exile has been expelled from their home or country by an authority and dwells in a foreign land. That, that's the state they're in. And the book of Daniel is, among other passages in the Bible, representative of what we call the exilic period. And most of the people of Judah lived in captivity of Babylon or its related territories. And there are specific books, Ezekiel, Daniel, Esther, and those Psalms I have up there that highlight reality in this foreign land. There's no better example of this than Psalm 137. Listen to this lament 
of life in exile. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, home. On the willows there, we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's the question. That's the question before us every day of our lives in our context. How do we sing the songs of Zion? How are we representatives of those who worship the King of Kings, those who worship the true God in a world of competing idols everywhere we turn? How do we sing the songs of Zion? How do we worship God faithfully in an increasingly oppositional culture? That's the big question. And so we recognize we can relate to this. You may be saying, what in the world does this have to do with me, the exilic period? Well, in the history of Israel, they lived in the exilic period. But if you're a believer in Jesus, if you have trusted Christ in saving faith and follow him, you are in exile. That's what the Apostle Peter says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, travelers, journeyers, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Don't shake your fist in their face all the time. Don't be just angry all the time. Be honorable. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Is that beautiful? You might not feel like an exile. Maybe you're getting angry because you're increasingly feeling like an exile in an American context, which has been generally pretty affirming about the Christian worldview, but decreasingly so. But realize there's something good about having to feel like you're not home. Because you're not if you're a Christian. You're on your way home. And this world belongs to God. And Jesus is in the process of taking back his world and advancing his kingdom. And his church, the people of God, are the primary instruments through whom he's doing that. But we're not home yet. Mature Christians are homesick people. They don't think the answer is in making Babylon Christian. They don't think the answer is in fixing secular cultures to be Christian. I don't see that at all in the Bible. What I see is be the people of God with faithfulness and people will be drawn in not to a more Christian secular culture but into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus and they will join you as an exile. And so we've got to see a radical difference between the kingdom of God of which we are citizens and God's people first and foremost and foundationally and this fly-by-night citizenship we have even in an incredibly wonderful country like the United States. It's going to come and go. Like every other human institution, the only institution that will endure is the church, the people of God that comes from every tongue, tribe, nation in the world. And so, so seeing things as exiles is essential for us. You know, it's unfortunate that when Americans hear the word pilgrim, they think of Thanksgiving. A pilgrim is somebody who's not home. They're on their way. And, and that doesn't mean we don't try to be salt and light 
in the way we think and talk and discuss and debate and vote and invest money and time and energy into all kinds of causes. It doesn't mean we're not engaged, but we go about it very aware that our citizenship is in heaven. That's where the only hope truly lies. And so we've got to be people who see ourselves as sojourners on our way home, homesick, but hopeful because we know we're going to get home. And so the book of Daniel is this incredible, helpful perspective on this because they are facing opposition. They're facing outright rejection. They're facing persecution. I think we're mostly in the opposition phase in this culture. Certainly there's rejection too. I don't think there's the kind of persecution we see in the book of Daniel and all over the world, but it's increasingly hostile. So what does it mean to be faithful? It may be helpful to just think about the word culture. It's customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or social group. And so so the Babylonians were brilliant in the way they brought the leaders from the nations they conquered to Babylon to enculturate them. And the way you enculturate is to indoctrinate. The way you get people part of your culture embedded in it and absorbing it is to indoctrinate, is to give them the teaching. And so as we saw last week, they had them read the main literature, and they became familiar with all the customs, and these guys did that, but with discernment, as we'll see, with a clarity about what's true and what isn't, they started to understand the culture better than the people who were from that culture. They were cultural exegetes. They were, they were brilliant about assessing realities. Really what a culture is is the values of a people group. It shows up in music and language and art and, and, and dance and, and the food and all these things. But it, it's really what you value. It's what's important to you. It's amazing that, you know, most of us are Americans in here. Quite a few of us grew up elsewhere. It's one of the things I love about grace. But, but in an American context, it's amazing how diverse the cultures can be in the United States. One of the greatest things about our country. I fly home to Connecticut, and it's a different culture. You get off the plane, you get on the plane, and you see people heading back to the Northeast, and they're talking different, their, their vibe is different, their way of relating is different, they call everybody hon and bud, and, and there's a familiarity that, that I immediately connect with, and I've been known to go visit my mother in Connecticut, but before I go to her house, I get off the plane in Bradley, and I drive to Worcester Street in New Haven to get pizza. It's Sally's, and if Sally's is too busy, I go to Pepe's just 100 yards away because you can't get it here. It's a different culture. I grew up in a gritty factory town area outside of New Haven, very diverse ethnically and racially and culturally, and then halfway through my junior year, I moved to Tadana's High School, which is one of the most affluent areas of the entire country. I didn't even know high schools had soccer teams. I had no idea. I guess, and perfectly good athletes chose to play soccer instead of football. It was bizarre to me. And, and like, Donna played tennis. I never played tennis in my life. There was one court somewhere in my town that was completely overgrown. I don't know what they were thinking. And they put that in. 
and she taught me tennis. And, and, and the big sport in Donna's town was sailing. I mean, sailing in her town since the 1700s. Dudes wear corduroy green pants with whales on them. It's bizarre. An hour and 15 minutes from where I grew up, completely different culture. It's, it's the east side of the Connecticut River. They're different over there than the west side where I came from. Near New York, right? We're all Giants and Yankees fans. They're all Celtics and Red Sox fans. It's amazing how this little state, third smallest in the country, but you've got diverse cultures in there. And there's nothing wrong with loving your culture. There's nothing wrong with relating to your culture and appreciating it. But the culture that we need to love as God's people far more than any other is God's culture. It is his kingdom. It is his values. Now, that'll be expressed in cultures all over the world. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith is that can happen. But, but culture is something that's very important to understand. We need to realize that, that this church has a culture. One of the things I love about traveling quite a bit and speaking is I love going into a church and in the first 20 minutes I'm there trying to read the culture. Ask questions. Find out what's going on. Ask them what the struggles are, what the real great things are, what defines them as a subculture. Whether it's a week at Hume Lake when I'm preaching, like I'm going to do this weekend at winter camp, I'm going to try to figure out what the culture of the church is there and of that week is. Or, or a church in Orange County or a church in Compton. It's amazing to, to try to read that, but then try to help God's people think God's thoughts after him. Whatever culture we may come from on a human level. And so we've got to think about what this means for us. It's just fascinating that as we saw last week, they changed the guy's names. Talk about a brilliant move. We're going to refer to you something different than what you were named at. Look at their names. God is my judge, is Daniel. Yahweh is my strength, is Hananiah. Mishael is who is like Yahweh. And Azariah is the Lord helps God's servant. Isn't that amazing? Can we just decide to start calling these guys their Hebrew names. It's amazing. The story highlights their Babylonian names and the stories where they tend to show up, but they never call each other by these Babylonian names. Look what they mean. Baal, protect the king. I'll do whatever Aku commands. There's no one like goddess Aku and Nabu's servant is Abednego. Is that amazing? Nebuchadnezzar means Nabu, protect my son. I seriously doubt these guys ever called each other I'll do whatever Aku commands, unless it was completely sarcastic with an eye roll. Can we practice their Hebrew names together? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now what's interesting is it seems like they responded to their names when the Babylonians called them that, but they never owned them. They never owned them. And, and when they refer to each other, they use their Hebrew names. You see how brilliant the Babylonians were. They, they, they change their name. Even what we're going to refer to you as is going to honor our gods, not yours. And so how do you navigate that incredibly difficult circumstance? You do it by blessing without blending in. Being different for the right reasons, not just to be different. To be able to do and appreciate and absorb and, uh, and dive into things that don't conflict with your Christian views. We do that every time we listen to Taylor Swift. 
or enjoy a Rams game, right? That, that's, that's not driving and dri- but but we learn to appreciate things. I remember Carice McDuff, uh, now Balaram, when she moved to India, it was this constant battle. What, what's Hindu and what's just cultural? Because everything can be traced back to Hinduism somehow in India, so can I wear henna? What can I do? To be in the culture, it's a challenge for us. It's not hard to separate or be the same. But to be salt and light is the challenge. And so that's where we are. Realizing that our convictions lead to our character, which leads to a life. And so Daniel 2 is where we pick it up. We, we aren't going to be able to read the whole thing, but I, I want to I just set the stage. What's going on here is, is the guys are in Babylon, and... And they're becoming prominent. They're becoming quite successful and well-known. And they're part of the, the leadership that's being trained up as young men to take over someday. And so in this context, the king has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he's terrified by it. And he wants to know what it means. So he calls his wise men in and he says, tell me what my dream said, what, what my dream was, and tell me what it means. And they say, oh, king, tell us the dream. And we'll tell you what it means. And he says, no, you used car salesman. Nothing wrong with used car salesman. It's just spread. No, you connivers. No, 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 no. If I tell you the dream, you'll come up with anything. you got to really show me know what you're doing. And you tell me what the dream said. Because I know what the dream said. Nobody else does. And so you tell me what it said. And they said, no one can do that. And they're not able to tell him the dream or the interpretation. And so his fear is gripping his heart. And so he just brings about the death penalty for all the wise men. (laughs) Oh, man's got an anger problem. Yeah, so uh, here we are. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Because the king was very angry. He was angry. And very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions. See, they saw them as wise. They saw them as as helpful, the ones they went to. That's fascinating. They were obviously operating in a way where they saw them as a helpful resource in this desperate situation. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Oh, that's great. That's great. He doesn't say, well, you made your bed lying at you stinking Babylonians. Look at you. You got yourself in a mess because you got a crazy king, don't you? Well, you're just going to have to sit there. No. He responds with prudence and, and discretion. Discretion is just knowing the wise path. And prudence is actually taking the wise path. It's not veering from it. And so th- th- these are character traits, right? There's no formula for how to respond in these situations. You need to have character that has prudence and discretion. He replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. See how he's working within the system? wisely, shrewdly, with prudence and discernment. Not separating, not just fighting it, not not just becoming like it, but but working within it with respect. He's respectful to the whole process, like we saw him be in chapter 1 with the food. 
he goes to the, the garden. He says, work with me here. <laughs> and he does. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. And then look what Daniel does next. Then Daniel went into his house and made the matter known to, here are our boys, let's say their names again, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. I think they would appreciate that. And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you've given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king's interpretation. And that's exactly what happens. Daniel goes into the king and he tells him like no one else was supposed to be able to do. He tells him what his dream was. And then he explains to him the meaning of the dream after telling him the details of the dream of this, this, this giant figure, this statue that's powerful and strong and, and has clay feet and has a weakness at its foundation. And he tells him that, that that statue represents Babylon, represents Nebuchadnezzar and the strength and the power. But he also tells them he's got weakness at his foundation. And there's coming a kingdom one day that will destroy not just his kingdom, but every other kingdom. And so we see this amazing picture of God-given ability to interpret the dream and even tell him what the dream is. And Daniel wants to make sure everyone knows who should get the credit for this. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, to him, Are you able to make known to me the dream? And he is able to that I've had in its interpretation. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And so he tells him that interpretation after telling him what the very dream was. 
It's just incredible. And so there, there are really three ways Daniel and his friends respond to this threat to their lives. It's a tough situation. And so they come to Daniel, and how does Daniel respond? The first thing he does is what I would say pioneer. He, he pioneers, he prays, and he praises. He pioneers. What do I mean by that? He takes a lead. He's a leader. He's not just following the culture wherever it may lead. He's not following the political winds. That's probably what I'm so sick about with politics more than anything, is politicians just saying what they need to say for this current election to get elected again and keep making money somehow as, as ser servants, right? How's that working? You can't get a straight answer out of them. You ask them a question, they completely ignore it, and they just stick in their little party line they wanted to say. But, but here we have honesty. We have integrity. We have a completely different way of operating here. They tell the truth. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to go down. But he's a leader. He's not even just a leader in Babylon in general. Daniel here is a beautiful example of a leader among God's people. Look what he does. He goes to his friends. How, what's Daniel's response? To strategize? To fix the problem? To go political? To go, uh, go strategize? No, he, he prays. He his first instinct is to lead. He goes to his friends, Daniel, verse 17, went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Dear ones, we need leaders among God's people. We need leaders, and that starts with being men and women of integrity. It starts with being people who are actually working hard and doing a good job at whatever it is we do. You know, if, if you're a plumber and you want to be a witness for Jesus, you know the best place to start that? Be a good plumber. <laughs> right? Adam, right. Isn't that what you do? I mean, what kind of witness is it if you're a lazy, slacking, no for good for nothing plumber and you want to tell people how, who you live for and who, you, who you're working hard for? First thing we got to do is just be committed to being good at what we do. And it doesn't mean we're perfect and it doesn't mean we're the best, but it means we're doing our best. And so we start by being good examples. The depth of their friendship is so obvious here. And you don't know how God's going to want to use you. And I, I just, we, we need leaders among God's people. And this isn't a big deal. I, I love that some of us in our church are, are running for political office and supporting those kinds of causes and getting in positions of leadership in the culture. But fundamental leadership is in conversations with coworkers. <laughs> fundamental leadership is just who you are and, and, and what you talk about when you're with people across the street when you hang out talking. On your sidewalk, as the sun goes down. It's just being an influence in those sorts of ways. You know, I'm, I'm always trying to encourage my kids to not be followers, but be leaders. Not follow examples, but set examples. That's what the Bible calls us to. And I remember my son Sam, I would listen to his interactions with his friends back in junior high, and it was just, he'd come home and I said, did you guys talk about anything meaningful for the last four hours? Anything? Uh, I don't think so. Well, are you going to do anything about that? Dad, can't do that. You know how hard that is? Be different. That's just because you're a pastor. That's why he said it. No. All your friends 
Parents want them to be meaningful <laughs> and leaders. And it was amazing. A couple years ago, Sam finally said, all right, I, I, I'm going to take some And he just asked a friend to meet one morning a week and do a Bible study. Not sure how that friend was going to respond or his other friends were going to respond. The friend was thankful and eagerly jumped into it, and his other friends were inspired by it. What a lesson that was. Remember, there was a guy when we were at Wheaton who... He looks back and he says he wasn't a Christian. And, and he, I won't get into the details of his life that backed up that idea, but, but I, I just had a heart for him and I moved toward him. And, and he was the kind of guy who gave you all the vibes of, dude, chill, just chill. You don't need, you don't need to be my pastor, just, just chill. And I was in grad school, he was an undergrad. And, and this guy, he, he just like kept, making it so obvious that I was, I was just trying to be too intentional with him. But over time, I noticed him being more receptive and even seeking me out at times. And we ended up having an amazing relationship. And he became a Christian, I'm pretty sure, during his time at Wheaton. And then he eventually became a pastor. But I remember in the time, right after he graduated, he, he was still kind of a, an aloof sort of dude. And I remember calling him on the phone. And I, was all, I would always pray with him at, at, when we would talk or get together. And I remember being on the phone. And I remember thinking to myself, well, the conversation was coming to a close. And I, I was about to pray. And I said, you know what? I'm going to show him that... This isn't just rules that we always pray. This isn't just some religious thing. It, it's more spirit-led than that. So I'm just going to say, hey, Scott, it's been good talking to you. I'll see you later. And there's this pause. And he says, aren't you going to pray? <laughs> and I thought, well, I wasn't going to. And he said, that's the main reason I call. <laughs> it's just amazing how deep down... I think most people you meet really want someone to take the lead in meaningful things and move toward other people and take initiative. And it's not complicated. You just say, how you doing? How can I pray for you? Hey, listen to what I learned in the Bible recently. You ever read the Bible? I mean, I failed at this. I remember I left here on a Saturday morning years ago after I was part of a memorial service for an, an amazing man named Orton Horn. Just a handful of you remember Orton Horn. But on the way home, I stopped at Starbucks. And there was a kid at, at the counter, and he said, wow, you're dressed up for a Saturday morning. And I said, yeah, I just came from a memorial service for a really good man. And he said, well, that's what life's all about, isn't it? Just being good. And it went through my mind to say, well, actually, the reason I said Orton Horn was a good man is because he had trusted Jesus, the only one who's ultimately good. And Jesus defined everything else in his life. You know what I said? Yep. <laughs> Looking back on it, I don't beat myself up for it, but, but I, I, I said, what's going on? You know what it was? I didn't have time. You know, if I said what I wanted to say, it might be an hour, Right? I got an hour. I got to go. And so I'm going to say what will get me out of there to my next thing, right? It's amazing how we can be selective and just have lives that don't allow for us to have simple influence. 
and leadership in the lives of people. It's not usually grand and glorious displays of leading an organization or a nation. It's just simple initiative in relationships that enable us to be leaders and make a difference, starting with our example. Why do we gather like this? Why do we have men's Bible study and women's Bible study? Why do we have children's ministry and youth ministry? Why do we worship? Why do we center the preaching of the word like we are right now? To create a subculture here that has the values of our king. And we want to be enculturated to those and indoctrinated to those in the best possible way so that we can have wisdom and prudence and discernment in ways that our character will be enabled to have. And, and so we need to be pioneers. But prayer is their instinct. I love that they pray. He calls his friends together. He takes the lead with them. And he says, we need to pray. We need to figure this out. We need to pray. Uh, practical things are great. But prayer is an utter foundational dependence we express knowing that God's the one who's going to have to work if anything of lasting value, if true salvation's going to come. And so they pray in verses 17 and 18. And they praise. God provides and they praise. Daniel responds with an amazing prayer emphasizing the sovereignty of God. And that is a massive theme. I, I, would, I would probably say the sovereignty of God is the characteristic of God that we're, want, we're supposed to see most in this and in our situation. God's the king. And even though things like they may be on their way to hell in this culture... God's king. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. Things are the way they are, and we're here in it right now. Now, you may want to move to Idaho, and I understand there are good reasons to do that. I do. Really good ones. I understand. Financial being one of the first. But if you're going because you don't like that it's getting harder to be a Christian here, rethink that maybe. Rethink that maybe. Because we've got to be people who are resilient, who want to be a blessing even, without blending in. Now, go to Idaho. I'm not going to judge you, really. I'm tempted at times, um, mainly because I love grizzly bear. But um, I saw one once in the wild. It's terrifying, wonderfully terrifying, but more than once, actually. But um, plenty of good reasons. Hear me? Plenty of good reasons. Not judging anybody who's gone or goes, but there are reasons to go that I don't think get the message of Daniel. We, we need to think about, hey, maybe, maybe for such a time as this, God has us here to be faithful and loving and patient and humble and discernment, discerning and prudent with discretion and wise people who will increasingly stand out as lights in a dark world. And people will come to you. And they'll even expect some wisdom like they do of these Israelites in Babylon. And so they praise. They praise God because he's sovereign. He's the sovereign king over all. That's who he is, and, and that's who they've seen him to be. And so, amazingly, what happens is they get promoted. They, they recognize the sovereignty of God over everything, and that's what their praise indicates. And that's what even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes, recognizes beginning of verse 46. Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said, Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery, 
it, now, I am not going to get into Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual state because you want to talk about bewildering. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, then Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and, bre- and he set it up in honor of himself. So he's not getting it the way we want him to. Uh, so, but he's recognized what's going on here is God's in charge. The God of Daniel's running the show here. That's really evident to me. And the sovereignty of God is a theme throughout our lives in the book of Daniel. And that's where Daniel 7 takes us. The Messiah, Jesus, is given authority and sovereign power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And the kingdom of Jesus, which is prophesied in Daniel 7, is the one I believe that is indicated in this story of this this stone that's coming, this kingdom that's coming, that's going to crush Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and every other one. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, Daniel and his friends, there's one more P, they get promoted. (laughs) They get promoted through this. They pray after pioneering, and they praise, but out of their control, they get promoted. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes you lose your job. Sometimes you lose your head following Jesus faithfully. But no people of God ultimately ever lose. We all win. We're all on the winning side because Jesus' kingdom will be the kingdom that reigns forever and ever. Skip that. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 21. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, referring to himself, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus will reign. But here's the amazing thing. The way he reigns is by becoming an exile. He enters our world and... This may be the saddest verse in the Bible to me. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus comes to his world that he created with the Father and the Spirit, and he's rejected. He's rejected not just by pagans, but by his own people. Jesus is going to bring us home because he left home. Jesus is going to bring the exiles into his home he's preparing for us because he left home and became one of us. And if you've never trusted Jesus, he is worth everything. He will redefine and rearrange and reorient and restructure and remotivate everything in your life. And that's not easy, but it's best. And so to live life in ways where we don't separate and we don't assimilate, we're not the same, but we're salt and light, where we're blessings without blending in, starts with a complete transformation of who you are when Jesus becomes your Savior and the Lord of your life. And if you've never trusted him, please make this morning that morning. There'll be people up here to pray with you, which is a great first instinct when God's working in your heart, as we've seen in this passage, who would love to pray with you and talk with you about this. But today is the day of salvation if God's been working in your heart. And for those of us, maybe, who've been walking with Jesus for for our whole lives, as long as we can remember, it's always important for us to reestablish and reenculturate ourselves to God's ways because we're bombarded every day 
with contrary messages every day. And we open ourselves up to it like crazy on social media, filling our lives with, at best, emptiness. So let's fill our minds with the word of God. Let's fill our minds with the worship of God because he's worthy. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be men and women of integrity and of conviction and of character that comes from the transforming work of Jesus through repentance and faith in him and him alone. Lord, I thank you for these dear ones tonight who will publicly testify to this truth and set themselves apart, not in a separating way, but in a blessing way. And Lord, I pray that we all who have trusted Christ would be growing in wisdom, growing in our knowledge of you and your ways so that we're able to be a blessing without blending in and be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it, most of all so that not just they'll be blessed, but they'll be brought to the Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.